Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Benos podcast and episode number 28 with coach Andre Lemanis. Uh, it was one of my favorite, if not the most favorite episode, just because of the flow and the synergy we had during the podcast. It was a true conversation. Uh, we talked about his background with Latvia, uh, touched a little bit on that. We talked about culture building. It was a huge topic, uh, communication, the expectation from assistant coaches uh, in terms of uh, what he expects from them personally as well as technically on the uh, on the floor uh, the responsibility a, a culture of accountability and just being your own um, self during the whole process it was a very insightful episode i urge everyone to listen that all the way through i know it's a long one but it's a very rich one um, if you're not subscribed yet please subscribe here at the bottom of this uh, youtube channel uh, if you're listening to audio, please, you may be listening, but you may not be a subscriber. Subscribe to this podcast. Uh, as many um, as more podcast listeners we have, as more subscribers we have, the more uh, better guests we can bring on and more listeners we have, the better it is. So I'm very thankful that you're here. I appreciate your 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 loyalty and I hope to see you and listen to you soon again. Enjoy this one and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Action. We're rolling. Andre Lemanis, welcome. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to the discussion. <clears throat> yeah, we've we've uh, we've had our encounters with the national teams. And uh, after having Will on, I figured now it's a good chance to have you on as well. And to top it off, uh, maybe you can, maybe you have some, because Will had a certain story uh, to tell about his memories against Lithuania. Maybe you have a certain summer that, we, that 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 jumps out at you from your memories with us. Ah, interesting. I mean, I uh, uh, I always enjoy my time in Lithuania for sure, um, uh, and just the um, the way the game is embraced in Lithuania and the fans um, and the way they support the team and you know know so much about basketball and. Uh, and it's just the little things, I guess, you notice when you get to Lithuania about uh, when you come to uh, shoot around, everything's organized. Uh, you have the towels, you have the, you know, the clock is turned on, like the, the water's there. It's like it's all, it's as basketball should be. And that's not the, uh, that's not how it is in every country. So uh, that's something certainly that stood out to me. But uh, I do remember, um, so as when I first took on the national uh, team head coaching role, um, part of what we did was sit down and strategize about, you know, how how do we move from being whatever we were? I think we were 13th in the world at that stage, at, at that time. And uh, how do we go about um, trying to advance? And, you know, of course, it was we needed to beat the best European teams. And in order to beat the best European teams, we needed to go play them um, in the leading in the leading tournaments. And the, that's something that perhaps we hadn't committed the time or the resource to up until that point. Um, and uh, so we made the we made the decision to do it, and thankfully the players committed. And um, I remember the first time I'm not even sure where we were. Um, we went and played, and we were like we got our backsides handed to us. We'd lost by like forty um, to Lithuania in Lithuania. The crowd's going nuts. Um, you know, you guys are running the horn set. We couldn't find a way to defend horns. We just kicked our butts, whatever we decided to do. And it was like, okay, like this is why we're here. It was a good realisation. It's like, thank goodness this happened now and not in the tournament and we're out. 
Um, and so uh, certainly that first time playing Lithuania and Lithuania, just the professionalism, the crowd, but the way you just destroyed us um, was uh, was quite eye-opening and, uh, and a memory. So two things to that. Um, the horn said, I, I assume it was either 2013, the first summer, because I, I think we started at the same time, me personally and you with the national 2013. And then uh, we met each summer, either during the tournaments or in preparation in Lithuania or elsewhere. But the horn set was prevalent because the Lavrinovich brothers were always involved. And yes. whenever the Lavrinovich brothers were always involved, every team had their hands their their hands full because you they, we just let them we didn't like we just let them read it. You know they they read each other yeah. so well blindly, and then it's it's hard. We don't even know what's going to happen. So how does the opponent going to know what's going to happen? You know, uh, yeah. so. So that was that was definitely one of the, our strengths also in the in the Eurobasket in 2013. But uh, I remember Will was talking about. I wonder if you remember the trip to Argentina, uh, where the, the the game got rained out, and Will was talking about how we practiced we practiced on the wet floor instead of instead of calling it a quiz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, our guys thought you were crazy. Yeah, <laughs> we we did too. We 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 as assistant coaches, we did too. We were like looking like it's time, it's time. We got it. We have to go. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting situation. That was uh, yeah, certainly our um, our NBA based guys were not going to play that game. Uh, they kept looking at me like, "No, we're just not doing it. this. Is dangerous." Yeah. And then uh, thankfully the game got called off, and then they saw you guys continuing to practice, and they were like, <laughs> "Okay, that's." Not something we would do, but uh, yeah, that was interesting. But uh, yeah, just going back to the horn set, and that was, I mean, Cal Nidus was at the top of that thing, um, leading the show. And as you say, it was um, uh, the, the twin brothers kicked our ass. But what, I think one of the learnings that we had from that, and that was why it was important to go um, and play those games for us uh, to get those learnings, was like we couldn't let you get into the horn set. You know, that was too hard to defend. So we needed to find ways to disrupt you earlier. And that's where we started to do some of the up-court defensive stuff and we double-team the balls that came over the halfway line. Just because if we let you walk up and run horns, we're in a lot of trouble. So that was uh, um, one of the things that we got certainly out of those uh, those preparation games. And um, I'm glad that we did it. And, you know, we developed a good relationship over the years for sure. I mean, Lithuania is obviously great basketball uh, nation and always had a great respect for it. And I thought, um, I guess I have a little bit of connection to that part of the world as well with my Latvian heritage. I always felt, you know, connected, but uh, I think we developed a, a great little relationship there um, over the years that I was the head coach and I really enjoyed it. And um, in some ways I feel uh, grateful that uh, you guys allowed us to have that preparation, which enabled us to sort of get that, that, that step that we're missing for so many years. Yeah, that, I mean that's why we're sitting here probably also because we've we've connected so well throughout the summers as, as many times as we saw each other and Lithuanians and Latvians call themselves brothers, you know. So it's it's yeah. it's it's definitely a brotherhood. And as as methodical as your uh, preparation for your national team journey was with the with the rankings and the pursuing pursuing the the, the top positions. That's the way my podcast is as well. I'm very methodical as well. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you know what you got yourself into today. Um, but you already touched on it. I, uh, and as we talked before, I have four quarters. I prepare the, 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 the different topics uh, up, up front, you know, a little bit of background, a little bit of philosophy and communication, cultural communication in particular. In your case, is very interesting and self-improvement part. And at the end, I will throw out some, 
some ATOs at you, uh, also with some questions from some of the followers on on, on my social media. But um, you mentioned your heritage and you're wearing a sweater that's that's very Latvian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how how is how is the uh, the connection? How did the connection come along with Latvia? Where does your heritage start with Latvia, and uh, where 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 does that have any kind of connection with your introduction to basketball? Uh, yeah, so um, both my parents are Latvian, um, and they were um, displaced during the Second World War, uh, ended up in um, displaced persons camp in Germany, and then through whatever the, the various processes were, ended up on a, a boat to Australia. Um, and so they both came out as teenagers in the, in, to Australia and started their lives uh, there, again, in displaced persons camps in Australia. And um, at that time, Australia was uh, marvellous the way that they treated, um, I guess, the refugees coming in. And there's a system of um, uh, we will, you know, let you into the country, we'll grant you, uh, we'll look after you, um, we'll give you a job for two years, um, but you have to go where we tell you to go and where we need the help. Australia was obviously still a very young country at that point and looking to grow its population as well. So that's how they started their life here. And um, uh, again, it's... Um, when you talk to my parents about, you know, the struggles that they had and the, the going through the war situation and, um, you know, not knowing where your next meal's coming from and then the uncertainty of where you're going to live, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing to, you know, get to my stage in life where everything's provided for and, you you know, you got complete safety and your meals are like you're never going hungry and you get the opportunity to become a basketball coach. So uh, I'm very thankful for... Uh, you know, what they've been able to provide me. And, um, yeah, dad, uh, dad got me into basketball. <clears throat> dad got me into basketball again in Australia. Um, basketball was uh, not a particularly popular sport, um, uh, even when I was young, but certainly when my parents got here, I think uh, the first time Australia played in the Olympics was 1956, which was the Melbourne Olympics. Um, and obviously they got... Uh, entry there because of the host nation status um, but uh, in terms of basketball within Australia as I understand the history uh, the Latvian population particularly within Melbourne and Adelaide played the significant role in the, firstly the establishment of basketball within the Australian uh, landscape and then uh, the growth of basketball and um, there's a famous uh, stadium which no longer exists in Melbourne but uh, it's called the Albert Park Stadium which is sort of the, the home of basketball in Melbourne and the great Lindsay Gaze ran that stadium and had a house there. And um, my father tells the story proudly of how he, you know, the, the opening night of Albert Park Stadium, he played there. So um, <laughs> certainly he brought the interest uh, and he got me involved. He was coaching my brother uh, in an under, under 10s team. Uh, I was six years old and they needed some players. They were short for players and uh, he threw me in so that I could start the game and, that's kind of where it started. So, yeah, I've been involved since I was six years old. Was your father playing a Latvia already? No, not that I'm aware of. Um, again, he was. He came out to Australia as a 13 or 14-year-old. And, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I think during the war and stuff, they spent a lot of time, um, yeah. obviously, just surviving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doing something else for sure. Um, but they, they both they met when they came, when they arrived to Australia. Yeah, yeah, I met yeah. in Australia. Yes, met in was, At any point now during your career, if we fast forward a little bit, was there any kind of um, is 
projection of coaching the Latvian national team? Was there is that was that a real thing at any point? Was there interest? Was there some sort of um, um, uh, communication? Yeah, I mean, the, certainly there's been communication. Um, obviously, they're aware of my Latvian heritage, and um, uh, I have a special connection to that part of the world. So, um, you know, if if the opportunity was ever right for both parties, um, for sure I'd be interested in that. And uh, I think they've expressed a, a similar thing, just to stay in touch. And if, you know, if it came up and the time was right and, you know, they were happy and it made sense for me and all those sorts of things, um, we're both uh, both parties would be certainly open to trying to get that happening. Um, that's like talking about career because it's also future. And I have, I have also... Um, couple thoughts about that about building a career but building uh, how was your approach to your career because you had uh, the New Zealand breakers then you 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 also you coached the boomers obviously then you went to Japan where you are right now or not right now at this moment but where you're coaching at this at this point of your career was there a methodical again we're back to methodical <laughs> methodical podcast methodical approach to your career or did you let it happen as it came along and then the the, the that's the way the cookie crumbled basically uh yeah part two of that it wasn't um it wasn't planned really at all it was um opportunities as they arose um and even just to fall in the coaching i wasn't it's not something that i had planned to do um you know my my playing career i was uh, end of the bench kind of guy um in in our top division in australia the nbl and um i got to a point where i Well, at that at that point in time, um, Australian basketball, some players were fully professional, not all. I was one of the ones who wasn't fully professional. I had to work um, to, to survive. Uh, and I got to a point where I couldn't get another contract in the Melbourne-based team. I would have had to move uh, to another city for, you know, at that stage with $10,000. And I had to give up a, a good job to move. And I had to kind of make a decision. And um, I was being. I was on a team that was coached by Brian Gorgian, who's the, the current national coach of, the, of Australia. Um, and he said to me at that point, and I think I was only 26 or 27, he's like, um, I think you'd make a good coach. If you want to go down that path, I'll help you. And it was sort of, it was a key moment for me. And whilst I was still young and, you know, wanted to play, it was like, well, if I'm going to make a living out of this sport, <laughs> it's obviously not as a player. So maybe this coaching thing's, you know, worthwhile giving a go. And uh, I guess I stopped playing early um, to start the coaching career. And again, not with any particular goals or um, path or plan in place. It's like, yep, okay, let's let's try this and see how it goes. And I found that I enjoyed it. And um, I think like every young coach, um, you sort of uh, have, to, you know, you, you experience your challenging times and your moments. And, you know, there's times when I was, Uh, so I ended up giving up my job to become a full-time coach and, you know, sign my first three-year deal in the league and things are going, you know, here we go. I'm a professional full-time coach. I've taken a pay cut from my day job to be a basketball coach, <clears throat> signed three-year deal. And after the first year, the owner sells, sells a license back to the league, pulls me into his office, gives me a, a check for a month and says, you know, see you later. Good luck. Game over. <laughs> yeah, game over. And now I'm scrambling again and, you know, ended up in a second division team somewhere as an assistant, working the bar at nights just to try to, you know, continue to make ends meet and, and survive in basketball. So uh, as every young coach, you have your, you have your challenges and <clears throat> then um, just got, you know, again, fortunate with some opportunities. 
um, that came up and had a, you know, uh, the, uh, a coach offered me a job as an assistant up in Townsville, and that was sort of the one that you know got me going again in the in the professional leagues, and sort of things played out from there, and you know just applied for jobs as they came available, and um, got yeah just kind of lucky from there, and um, just on that actually had an interesting you know, and again I think it, obviously everyone has different goals and objectives and does things different ways, and some people like the plan and I want to go and do this and that, and I think that's good, but. Um, I visited with, uh, used to visit with Brett Brown when he was at the San Antonio Spurs um, for many years. And, you know, as you do as a young coach, you're there and you kind of got a little bit of a taste because you get on the inner sanctum. And I was, you know, talking to him once about, uh, you know, how do you get into the NBA and do you think I can and this and that. And he looked at me and uh, he said, you know, the best job, it's the one you got. He's like, just do that really well. Be damn good at the job that you have and things will play out for you. And it was, a, for me, a really good piece of advice. And uh, I've sort of stuck to that ever since. And things have, have they've kind of worked out for me since then. You just get, you know, I've got lost in being great. It was good as I can at the job that I have. And then it's the other opportunities sort of have found me. I haven't gone seeking them. <clears throat> yeah, fo- focus on the thing at hand. Focus on your yeah. on, on on what you're doing right now, and the things will turn out the way they're supposed to turn out, and uh, people will notice. I mean, it's it's. I think it's it's very. A lot of people get caught up with making too many future plans of where you want to be in five years. Too methodical in a sense. And I, I I get that question a lot of times. Where, what's your five year plan? What do you see yourself in five years? And I just heard it today on the podcast, and I made up a quote, my own quote to this. So you know, you know, like the the um, uh, movie with Kevin Costner, Dancing with the Wolves. Yeah, uh, I, I bet that's the first time there's a, there's a basketball reference with Dancing with the Wolves. <laughs> but but I would like to d- be dancing with basketball. You know, like dancing with life, dancing with basketball along, and the way that the, the things break for me or they don't break. That's the way I want to approach it. That's the way I want I want to take how they come, and I don't like to put myself in the box of how things should be in five years because you first of all you set yourself up for disappointment and second of all you become too uptight with achieving that goal and there's too many factors that are out of your control so you just have to control what you can control right now in that moment with the job at hand like you said like brett brown gave you that perfect advice and then i think people will notice you will feel also more Focusing in, uh, on the thing at hand and and get taken away the distractions of distractions of goal setting. You know that's I think yeah. that's that's a, and something we tell our players all the time, right? In the games, yeah, <laughs> it's like control what you control. Be great in the moment. Don't worry about what's happened or what's going to happen in you know in two plays time. Be great in this play. Yeah. Um, so it's a similar sort of concept, I think. <clears throat> and move and move on to the next play. You know, move on to the next yeah. play quick quick enough to forget what happened if it was bad or good or whatever. Just next play. Yeah. It's a weird life that we're living. I feel like it's it's uh, the the coaching um, the coaching career and the approach to it. You know, you have to be very flexible, very realistic. And I feel like you have a very realistic approach to your career of like moving. But it's it's something that um, not everybody is made out for in terms of like being this flexible and having the world open to us. You know, like other like other regular life or regular jobs. They're so in in uh, in enshrined into their own community and they're staying where they're put where they're at and we're open to the whole world like you said like the the compared to where your parents grew up and where we're growing up everything is just wide open and i think it feels like it takes a different mentality to 
go that route. Not everybody is cut out for that. And you have to be really flexible and able, adaptable, I think. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you're right, it's hard. And not, yeah, it takes a mindset from you doing it, um, but it takes a really special um, personal people to do it with you, right? So, you know, if you're going to be married or if you're going to have kids, and I think that's maybe sort of the bigger choice there is, you know, am I going to do what I want and follow my sort of career wherever that takes me? I need to be flexible enough to do it. Or am I, you know, going to settle down with a family um, and in many ways sort of make choices that are best for them? Like, you know, the kids moving around all over the place and and always being disrupted. I see that all the time as a choice that coaches have to make. They have an opportunity, but can I really, you know, uh, now the kids have... Now the kids have started school and they're just happy. And the last time we moved, they got upset. And, you know, like, can I do it again? And now we're going to a foreign uh, country that speaks a foreign language. Like, how's that going to work? And now my wife, she's just got herself a decent job. We just got settled. How's she going to be? Like, you're just um, disrupting so many lives if if you have a family. I think that's a difficult choice. And it's actually just happened here in Australia. Like, uh, there's a Canadian coach who was coaching the Perth Wildcats, um, Scott Morrison. And, uh, you know, he's just announced in the last week that he's he's going back to Canada just, you know, because of his family situation and his kids got disrupted here and they needed some help. And so he's gone back to Canada where he can get a bit more help, you know, and it's, uh, I think that's the thing. Often for us as individuals, it's maybe an easy choice or easier choice or easier to do. It's yeah. those around us that we impact. <clears throat> yeah, it's there's a fine line behind, be, be, between selfishness and upside for the career for security for the whole family right like you you're doing it for the family you're doing it for 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 the the good of the family for the security and your future but you're also doing it for your career sake to a degree where you're you're, you're trying to build and you're trying to achieve something and build something but also at the same time like you said it takes a special person on your side to be accepting and to be also you know negotiate be able to not negotiate it's not the right word probably but uh, um sacrifice and find a this equilibrium between both parties to have to, to have the, the like a realistic approach to the future yeah for sure and i think that's a that's a tough thing to find i think um as sad as it is um realities are a lot of coaches are divorced you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's exactly. a tough life tough life on both parties you know <clears throat> absolutely um and and third party is the kids, obviously. So it's 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 a uh, it's definitely lot, lots of lots of stories uh, for sure. There's a, there's a crazy statistic in the NBA that I've recently heard. I just can't remember the exact percentages, but I think it's over half of of coaches that that have this extremely hard career that end up divorcing. But I don't know the exact number. Um, mm. You ready? You ready to move on to philosophy? Uh, sure. <laughs> let's get <laughs> philosophical. Um, okay. And Will mentioned that as well because of uh, the, your style of coaching and the way you approach the team. I wanted to talk about egoless coaching, um, putting your ego aside as a coach and not to be over, overbearing, overbracing, and and letting the players be. How how do you approach and how do you feel that you? can be still your authentic and your own self while coaching without being stepped on because that's the I think that's the biggest approach biggest fear I think of young coaches especially where you have to put your ego aside and not to be control a control freak 
and you're trying to project the nice side of you, right? So it, it kind of gets responded back to you and it's kind of a give and take, but it doesn't, it's like one bad apple can ruin the whole deal. So I, I'm wondering how you deal, how you implement this egoless, egoless coaching and how do you deal when players are trying to test you and overstep the line? Because there's certainly, have, without mentioning names, you, like I, I, I don't like to mention names on my podcast, but when there's players that approach and try to step the line, how do you, how do you deal with that? How long do we have on the podcast? This is a, <laughs> this is a lifelong journey um, with lots of, you know, lots of learnings and mistakes along the way and continual learning. And it's a, um, maybe I'll jump forward to one of the things in the third or fourth quarter, which is about, uh, um, you know, continual questions you ask yourself or growth or whatever. And um, the thing that I keep saying now is, the player, like I keep getting older, but the players keep staying the same age. So, you know, how do I continue to keep that, you know, relationship with them? Um, and am I still relevant? But uh, in terms of building, so again, this is a this is a long answer. So if you get um, bored or think your listeners are going to get bored, please interject them and, and uh, put me in a different direction. But um, so again, in terms of my journey, uh, I started my first professional head coaching job, and um, as is normally the case when you get a head, co- you know, head coaching opportunity, you take over a team that's struggling. You know, it's rare that the team that wins a championship fires the coach and brings in someone as a first-year head coach, right? And so you're going to take a team that's struggling. I walked into a tough situation, and we were bad. And in my first year, you know, we were on a ten-game losing streak. Um, thankfully, I had a good owner. Other, you know, most owners would have fired me. And of course, in, in that, you're getting young coach, you're getting lots of advice, and everybody's giving you stuff. And um, again, I, I played for Brian Gorgian, and he's a you know he's a pretty demanding coach. And people would, uh, he's the most winningest coach in, in the Australian league. And people were always, oh, Brian would do it like this, and Brian would do it like that. And and then I started trying to be harder, and I'd yell at people, and I, and I found over time, like in the um, reviews at the end of the year that you know the players the feedback that i got from the players was that um they weren't happy they didn't like the way i was coming across and um that the relationship just wasn't there and as i thought about myself it's like it's not who i am Uh, um that's not me i'm false when i'm trying to do that that's not i'm trying to be somebody i'm not and so my first bit of advice is like regardless of you know what i say what anybody else says you have to be yourself. Like your personality is your personality. If you are a screamer and yellow, be a screamer and yellow. If you're not a screamer and yellow, don't be a screamer and yellow. You know, like obviously somewhere in there you find the bits, you know, you got to mold a little bit this way, a little bit that way, depending on the situation, the personnel, but be who you are because the players will, will um, players know when you're genuine and when you're like, they sense when you're faking stuff and that's when they take advantage if, or, or you lose the trust. Um, that's the biggest thing, I think, the trust, uh, if you're not who you are. Then again, through my journey over time, and there's a the sport over here, AFL football, which is um, a very big sport in, in Australia, uh, and they've gone down for many years now, this whole idea of um, like this team, uh, team values and team building, and my assistant coach uh, had a connection there, and we started down that path. And, you know, to this point, we'd often had – you know, people come in from business about you have to think like this and you have to think like that and there's above the line thinking and below the line thinking and all those sorts of things. And 
none of it had really resonated with me because there's always somebody telling us how it should be. You know, you have to do it like this. And I was like, well, why do we have to do it like that? Like, you know, why why is that going to work for us? And then uh, we got a guy in from the AFL that we call it team building side of of the game. And the, I guess the penny drop moment for me was um, when he went around the room, he's like, you know, how many games of experience do you have? And someone, I've had 50 games and I've had 200 games. And at that stage, we had a player on that team who played the most ever games in the Australian NBL. Like he, Tony Rollinson, he played like 620 games. And so he finishes all that and he's like, okay, so there's like, okay, sorry, I missed a bit. At the start of that, there was a question from one of our players, like, cause, you know, he opens up, he gives his spiel and he says, you know, has anyone got any questions? The player puts his hand up and says, yeah, why are you here? You've got leading teams on your shirt. Are you here to help us pick a captain or what, you know, what's the day about? And then he goes around and asks the, 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 um, the game's experience and he said, okay, so there's like, Two and a half thousand games of experience in this room, and you guys want me to tell you how to run your team. No wonder you guys can't win anything. And for me, that was the the penny drop moment to say, okay, this guy's different. Like there's something here that's different. And that's where sort of we start to establish the whole um, process of player-driven uh, team values. And so then you know, we go through a process of discussing as a team what do we stand for. Um, how do we want to be seen? What values do we want to expose? What do we all commit to? And because the players have been part of the process, what it then gives you is a framework that you can sort of keep coming back to and um, utilise to say, you know, well, as a team, and you were part of this discussion, you know, as a team, we said that, you know, we wanted to move the ball or, or um, and so I'm, just going back to what we agreed to as a group, I'm not saying you're a bad person, Bernus, for taking that shot. I'm not saying you're a bad guy. But as a team, we agreed that that's not the best way for us to play. So you just can keep coming back. You can hold people to account in a different way uh, to the values of the group. And I find that um, very powerful. Um, and so I guess I've, I've really grown down that path over time. Um and the um, it's when I when I present it, there's often the question is, does it feel like the inmates are running the asylum? Right? It's, <laughs> that's often the question that I get, and I my answer is um, I actually feel that I have a lot more control by giving up control, um, and there's winning like you know there's um, by empowering the players to communicate to take ownership. Uh, things get taken care of. Like, it doesn't always have to be the head coach taking care of things. And, you know, there's classic examples of uh, teams that won a championship and, you know, you're sitting around afterwards having a drink and some stories start to come out of stuff that I didn't even know. But, you know, someone on the team or the captain took care of it or someone else took care of it or an assistant coach took care of it before it got to be a problem. Um, And so I actually feel like I've got a lot more control um, by giving up control to the group. Not not micromanaging. Managing. I mean, there's a lot of points now. I I just I was taking notes as we were talking, and that reminds me of several things. So uh, Ituda said something also where he you have to at some point trust the orchestra. Like you just you yeah. you, you you let them do, and you are kind of the the director of 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 the the whole spiel. 
but you obviously you have to give up the control to trust them, and then you they you, you have to bring them up to that point where you can trust them. But the accountability factor uh, also tells me, like um, that when you are projecting one single truth on 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 the on the team and just only one way of doing it, it will never. It's it's hardly ever going to work out the way you envision your truth to be. So every team has their own sort of truth, you know. And you reversed you reversed it, and by by letting the team define the truth that makes them the best possible team they can be because each season or each national team you'd exchange one or two players it's already a different deal like you you change the locker room basically you change a little bit of the style maybe a, a situation has to change because every player every personality is different so every team has a different truth i believe and uh, by being flexible and that's the fascinating thing to me about basketball that this ability to read and to be flexible and to adjust on the fly and to see this team needs this and next year the team needs something else or maybe two months later the team needs something else right now and that that by by allowing the team to speak up and to take responsibility on certain topics on certain situations it makes your job easier but also it creates trust between the both parties yeah, hundred percent. I think that's a really uh, a really good way to summarize it or describe it. And if you're trying to put your truth onto the group, that's what I found is when things go bad, it's easy for everyone just to wash their hands and say, "Well, this is what you said would work, and this is your way." And I, you know, I told you it wouldn't work, and so this is all your fault. Whereas if you engage everybody from the start, there's a there's a greater ownership from everybody. It's like like, you know, so a, a micro example of that would be you're doing a scouting situation and there's a, you know, pin down situation and you say, okay, we're going to do it like this. And one of the players steps up and says, oh, hang on, I think we should defend it. Like we should go over instead of under. My thing normally in that situation is say, you want to do it like that? Good, do it. Because now they have a responsibility to make that work. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, suddenly they're going to show you that they, they were right. And I exactly. Think, uh, um, that's a that's a good place to be. But what you need to do is create that environment, and it just doesn't happen. Like you need to create the environment of trust, and you need to create that environment where players are prepared to step up um, and say some things. But there is that. I mean, there's the line, right? You know, I say all this, and I've I've had it before. So I had a, a, a young coach come and visit with me um, back in my New Zealand breaker days. Uh, he just got a head coaching job in the second league down, and he came and spent you know a couple of weeks with us and. Um, we did it, you know, was really interested in this this space and the player empowerment and those sorts of things. And um, he went away and had all his notes and he came back the next year to visit. And uh, I said, how'd you go? He said, well, it was interesting because I started down that path. And then after a while, like, because I was always asking the players on their opinion and stuff that the players thought I didn't know what I was doing. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't know the answer. So I kept asking the players what the answer was. So. You know, there's still obviously that piece of um, of you giving them the confidence that you're, as you said before, as the as the conductor, you have the plan. You know, <laughs> um, you're asking for their assistance within the broader plan, but you kind of you know what you're doing. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and uh, to get back on that, like you have to be yourself. I think, like it's, as you said, like the players, the players see through that, see through a facade that you're trying to put on if you're not trying to be yourself. And 
I think it's a great point that you're making that you, you when you realize after reflecting that you know this it was not you and the the coach that you're talking about he was probably doing it too much of uh you know being what of doing of what he saw you do or what he what he was trying and and not really playing the, uh, reading the situation at hand and and realizing that the players are probably uh needing a little bit more of a direction at some point or a little bit more of a of a uh, strict system and then you let them within that system make a decision and they're more engaged in that decision because it was their decision their final decision my, my father was doing that when the, when we were coaching in the second division in germany and he was also he's considered a player coach but we were successful because he also had the respect of being a former player but also because we had guidelines of how to play what to play and then in certain situations it's like because there was some tricky situations of how you want to guard a certain player in a certain situation and then you have to decide like you know do we going to go over do we go under top lock or whatever and then the the players are you can see that the players are kind of like they they feel how they feel on the floor when they guard you they know better of how they feel to fight around the screen or to see if it's going to be but this situation feasible or not it's realistic you know a lot of coaches may be yeah. too theoretical and then you have yeah. to listen of the coaches of the players and their feel for the situation themselves if they have that experience of like ah oh, i've this is this may not work so then they're more dialed in yeah um yeah to, cool. and if the angle of the screen is different in this particular situation all that like the game's dynamic but for me it comes down to at the end of the day if you can build an environment of trust that's for me the key thing is um where uh there's trust within the group that we can uh have a free exchange of ideas um the people aren't going to take offense i'm always saying this because i care ultimately for what's best for the group you know i'm yeah, telling you yeah. this because i care about you and i want you to do well so because when you do well the group does well um those sorts of situations and if you don't spend time on that I mean, you're never gonna you're never gonna build that trust, um, and so I think you know certainly it, it takes time, it takes effort. It doesn't always, it's not always smooth. Either. It doesn't always work. I'm sitting here sound like you know it's, <laughs> it's easy, but it's not. And there's still people that don't get it. I mean, because you know teams and individuals, of course, there's players that are worried about their family and their next job and their next contract, and they need certain certain well, they believe they need certain outcomes in order to look after themselves. And how does that fit within the team dynamic? Um, but at the end of the day, for coaching, for me, it comes down to relationships and the better you can build your relationships, then the more, like as a coach, all you can do is influence, right? You can't play. You're not out there playing. All you can do is influence. If you don't have the relationships, if the player doesn't trust you, you can't influence or your ability to influence is, is reduced. And so you need to build that environment. And if you can get to a point where a player truly believes and truly trusts that what you want is for him to succeed and to do well, then you have a chance to influence, in my opinion. <clears throat> the intent the intent is always good. Like it's good for it's the intent is for the good of the player, for the good of the team and for their future. But like you said, like the the it starts with the head coach. The, he has to show that he's also taking responsibility for his own actions. Will was talking about that where how to build a trusting environment, right? Like we're talking right now. It's probably by being first to admit to your own flaws, to your own mistakes. When you draw up an ATO that was bad, or like there's something that you have to show the players, like you have to be secure with your own uh, uh, th the own mistake this, that you did, 
and tell them like, yeah, I that was me, and please, you know, like that I, that's on me. Like, don't don't worry about yeah. it. We're all, and, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like, we're not, we're not. You make mistakes. I make mistakes too. And yeah, we're, it's we're for, not yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in that um, again with the national team and Luke. You know, yeah, but you get your piece of your growth from everywhere, right? And Luke Longley was a, an assistant for me on the national team, and he's uh, he's a wonderful person, and he's invested a lot in me over time um and he really gets this space well he the, the connection space and the and the being able to build a relationship with people and get them to um trust and to understand that you value them and um and one of the things on the with the national team in the early days like looks a big guy in the in the surf and um uh paddle boarding and i'm not a great guy in the water and all that and he kept wanting to get us on on the paddle boards and uh, as a team and all that and he's like Dre, it's good for you to be vulnerable in front of the players, for you to, you know, to fall over and fall off and look out of your depth and all that. So he said that's a good thing um, to to expose yourself like that in front of the players. And that was an interesting sort of thing for, for him to say. Um, and just what you said there, like just with, this year with my Japanese team, we had that exact situation. We came flying back in, in a game, um, came back from 20 down, fourth quarter, the ball, the ball game's on the line with, uh, you know, we get the, we get the, uh, they score, we get the timeout, we advance, we're like two down with eight seconds to, to play. I run a just terrible end out of, side out of bounds play, ATO, just terrible. We turn it over and, you know, in the, in the video session on the, on, on the Monday morning, I was like, fellas, that's me. Like that's, this is me. Like for sure, there's a terrible play for the personnel that we had, bad choice. And then, Open, and I think they were a little surprised by, by that. And then, but then you go into the video. All right. So, you know, pick and roll defense, you need to be over here. You know, I made my mistakes. You made your mistakes. Let's all get better. <clears throat> yeah. I, I love, I love that. That's, that's totally, uh, we're talking, we're going to talk about Japan a little bit more. Uh, but to me, like, this is such a, um, uh, the style of, of communication, style of interchanging your own thoughts, your own, like you said, being vulnerable, not afraid to show that you just have to be at some point. I mean, like uh, your, your capabilities, you, you can't be doing the same mistake over and over. I mean, I, that's, no. I think that's, that's self-understood, but uh, at some point you like play, coaches make mistakes as well. And I think that's, that's a huge part of, of, um, of a coach's career, but talking about, um, Let's talk about a little bit about the boomers and because of the system that you've built throughout the years when you started. And I was fortunate enough to start at the same time and watch the progression where I saw the team grow throughout the years. Like you said, early on when you when you guys came over, uh, like we had the upper hand, but I could see like the way you were setting up the system uh, centered around Petty and centered, centered around the, the, the players that you had. It was getting more difficult to guard each summer just because of how natural and how read and react fluent the system ended up being where you basically had counters to everything. And I was wondering how the progression was of implementing the roles and implementing the system over, over, over the course of each summer. And, you know, was, was basically was, was the system based on the roster or was the roster based on the system that you that you wanted to implement like where, where which which direction did you end up or like your your thoughts and your philosophy implementation uh with the boomers yeah that's another question that i could answer for take two hours to answer <laughs> um so let me get that last bit first because that's a, that's a 
I think a question that happens a lot, right, is, you know, do you recruit to your philosophy or of how you want to play or do you fit your philosophy around what you have? Um, and I, I think the, the answer is always both, right? Um, so, so, sorry, national team, I think it's definitely, like, the best players are the best players. They're going to make the team. Like, you know, Paddy Mills is going to make the team. Andrew Bogut is going to make the team. So in those situations, it is... This this is what we have. So how do we make how do we make that work? Let's put in something that gets the best out of the talent that we have. Um, I think in a club team, it sometimes starts the other way. Like you have a like again, you are who you are as a coach, and you know what you like and how you like to play, and you try to recruit to that system. But you don't get every piece that you want. Like nobody ever does, unless you know, unless you got the the biggest budget in the in the league. Um, you don't get everybody that you want. And so all the pieces exactly as you want them to fit. And so once you have your team, then you still, then that needs to flip to go, all right, these are the pieces that we have. So now how do we make these bits all fit together? So for me, it's uh, it's always a combination of both. Um, in terms of the growth of the boomers and, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about just around the, the building a team, I think for me, that's... Um, uh, so building the culture of a team, that's where it started with me. So um, in 2013, when I took over as the head coach, so I was fortunate to coach under Brett Brown for from 2009, 2012, I was assistant coach. Um, and I think Brett did an amazing job of starting to bring us into the, um, like the professionalism side of it, so to speak. Like, uh, you know, he challenged the, he challenged Basketball Australia around the, you know, how we support the, how we support the team and bring in video analysis and all those sorts of other other bits and looking after the players to give them the opportunity to concentrate on playing so they're not having to wash their own uniforms and things like that, you know. So, you know, a great job of just dragging the program up. Um, and then when I took over in 2013, um, the space where I first put my effort is into. Um, developing this like this culture piece and so the first thing we did was we got in all the main guys um and uh at that stage too that with young players Dante X and Ben Simmons that we saw as the future of the of the boomers um we got them all just into a camp in Canberra we didn't do any basketball came in and we just sat down two three days with a facilitator in the in the room about um who do we want to be as a team how are we going to play what do we stand for all these things that we've just been speaking about but also we spoke to, all right, so if we want to win a, like at that stage we spoke about, we just want to win a, a medal. Um, what does that take? And it was about, and you know, I was coming from the place of, well, one, we need commitment because at that stage, Australia, like to, to qualify, we had to beat New Zealand. And most of the time the NBA guys didn't come back. We did it with the NBL guys. And then we'd see the NBA guys every second year. You know, the world championships, they'd rock up. And then the Olympics, they'd rock up. And we went through and statistically, the European teams that were winning these medals at world championships and Olympics, they were together every single year. And so like, so they're building and we we just see each other every second year. Like that doesn't work. And then to beat, to win the medals, we've got to beat the best European teams. That takes a commitment of time. Like, you know, this is the off season for all the NBA guys. We understand that. We appreciate you come in and give up your time, but if we're serious about winning. We need to be like the European teams aren't coming to us. We're on the other side of the world. So we need to be prepared again, for you guys to give up time with your families and to go on to sit in Europe for three weeks before a tournament 
and go there and play, you know, play all the leading games and do all our preparation in Europe before we go into a into a major tournament. Um, and that was part, that's where it started. And, you know, I remember clearly that in 2013, where all the players sat there, and at that stage as well, it's like, it's and it's not only for the World Cup and the Olympics, it's when we play New Zealand in the qualifying. Like, I need you guys to turn up as well. And they all looked at each other, you know, the main guys and said, I'm in, are you in, are you in, are you in? And they all committed at that point to, yes, we want to do this. And that, for me, was a significant point because whenever, you know, as time goes on and someone's a bit tired and a bit injured and a bit, that's like, okay, but you guys said to win a medal, this is what we needed to do. And it's like, yep, that's right. I'm, I'm coming. I'm in. Um, and so I think that was a, a, a significant part of that. Um, and that enabled us to get that, that growth. Like we took, you know, again, we go play you guys, I think, whatever it was in 2013, Lithuania, the first time you just absolutely hammer us. And then sitting there going, goodness me, we're a long way from the, <laughs> these guys, you know. Um, and how the hell are we going to go out horns? Um, but <laughs> the uh, um, those learnings and that continual, like that time just spent together and away in Europe and just, you know, so we could, um, we also put in, you know, calling the, the the team culture guy, like he came with us and we did sessions uh, around that, um, how we continue to build as a team and what do we stand for and what are our learnings. Um, but also with that, the offensive and defensive philosophies and ultimately, you know, I run that that flow offense and in its purest form, um, it just has basically guidelines, you know, So, but it comes down to read-react and that's just the time spent together and, again, the players... I think it, all of that fits together, like because they they trusted they trusted each other, they trusted the system. They started to understand that um, the flexibility within sort of the offense was actually an advantage because um, it didn't matter what teams did defensively, and it was hard to scout and all those sorts of things. And then you put them in uh, put them in environment and let them be good basketball players, um, and that. That uh, sort of, you know, thankfully evolved over time to being a, a pretty good group. <clears throat> yeah, and that's, I think that's the biggest advantage of a flow offense like you did, like you ran throughout the years, throughout the summers. And like, first of all, like you said, the first point is that everybody was there most of the time. So they, you naturally, for a flow offense, you need to know each other on and off the court. And that, that translates on the court as well. The, the chemistry is uh, uh, trans translatable. Um, but it, so you you didn't, Per se, with the flow offense, you didn't really care of how other teams, what kind of pick and roll defense they played, what kind of what kind of defenses they had. You just, you know, you ran your stuff, and depending on how they guarded, you had counters for every basically every situation that the defense was throwing at you. Yeah, um, yes, and not necessarily like scripted down with a video session. This is the counter, or at practice, this is the counter. Like that evolves over time, just by yeah. playing the games and. You know, situation happens and then you go, okay, so this, you know, you play a, a leading game and someone does blow you up with something. You go, okay, so what are we going to do here? You know, and sometimes the coaches come with an answer. Um, sometimes the players have an answer. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about, you know, we didn't care how we were defended. Like, ultimately, we didn't care because, well, one, we can't control how you're going to defend us. <laughs> That's your choice. It's not our choice. We can't dictate to you. Of course, going in the games, you're scouting saying, well, you know, they show them pick and rolls or they drop some pick and roll coverage, or, you know, and they turn the top block, these sorts of situations, whatever it is. 
but that's just a guide. Like if it goes in the game, it's different. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're exactly. not, we don't get stressed by it. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, that's cool. But, you know, suddenly now they're out uh, blitz and pick and rolls, no problems. You know, we've got an answer for that or we feel we have an answer for that. But that's that's the thing. That's the thing I love about the flow offenses because, uh, and I keep, and every other podcast I keep saying that that with uh, and I don't I don't mean to brag or whatever, but it's it's the fact that when Quinn Snyder was in in Moscow with us, uh, we had this flow transition um, offense that we ran, and it was lots of because we had very high IQ players that were able to do that to were able to read and react, and we had like a, a front side and a back side and a transition, and you run different counters to every defense you encounter if they deny it you go through the big and and yada 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 so I, i feel like this that's the biggest advantage where in europe you have too much rigid offenses where it's this way and no other way and you have to absolutely make the defense uh or you you just have to um, um uh, how you call it? it i forgot the english word where you have to just basically put your offense on top of their defense no matter how they defend it you know And that doesn't mm-hmm. work all the time. It just really, you, like, you really just stagnate and you stop, you stop ball movement, and you get out of out of rhythm. So I prefer I prefer flow over rigid all the time, and, and especially during the season, you have all the time in the world. Most of the time, yeah. you have you have more more time to implement it and to keep running it instead of a national team where you basically hope that everybody comes from window to window. Um, but you had a full time culture guy. Is that something that I I, I mis, uh, misunderstood? Uh, so when we got together with the windows, um, so the window <clears throat> when we got together as a group, we we started to engage the guy full time to come with us. Like he wasn't 12 months of the year, yeah. but he traveled with us certainly before we went into uh, before we went into Rio. He came with us to Brazil and to Argentina in the lead ups. Um, he can't get in the Olympic Village, so he didn't stay, he didn't hang around for the Olympics. But um, yes, we uh, we engaged him. Interesting. Uh, I uh, I would love to talk to him one day, and <laughs> that would be a really interesting interesting factor because it's, that's a lot of um culture is, is it, people take it for granted you know like chemistry is supposed to happen out like naturally but that's uh, that's i think wishful thinking uh, i think having somebody who's an expert in a culture building and having implement that at, with with actions and with certain like again methodically <laughs> uh it's yeah. it's probably much more effective yeah and i mean it's like everything right it, If you spend time on it, you got a chance to make it work. If you, you know, if you, how many times do you do pick and roll coverage at practice? You know, every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, culture. We talk about it once at the start. We you know, spend 15 minutes on it at the start of the season, and then here we go. Like, really? Like, you, you expect <laughs> somehow that that's going to magically work? So if you don't spend time on it, like, you can't really expect it to to be effective, in my opinion. And so. Um, Yeah, he's a you know he's a he's good and and so my point there is the invested time in it and again he's most I saw I've seen him being most effective I guess if he's with you and he's with the team and then you know he's off having a cup of coffee with someone and talking to something you know a player about this or I saw you at practice you got a little frustrated what was that about you know how would you you know how can we um, make that into a positive or how can we change that or you know what would you do should you go talk to him like just. Those sorts of those conversations around the edges, I think, are really useful. And even I mean, just maybe just a, a little tip here, something that's uh, you know a good uh, starter, and something that you know we did in Japan here because the language barrier and stuff. And I don't have a guy, but just at the start was um, so you know you get people to sit around, they share experiences, and you put them in groups, and then it's you know just a simple question like so: the best teams you've been involved with, like what are the sorts of things that happen in the best teams? 
And then the worst teams you've been involved in, like what experiences have you had? You know, why, why do you think those teams are bad? And of course, you know, the best teams are, you know, we got along and the players, you know, spent time together and everyone was unselfish. And the worst teams, there was bitching in the locker room. You know, everybody was unhappy. Everyone played for themselves. No, like all those sorts of things start to come out. And so it's all right. So we list these up on the board. And it's as simple as, well, if you don't know what to do, do more of this and do less of that. <laughs> let's, let's start that's there. <laughs> That's fair. but he's not a team psychologist he's a, he's literally um, like like is a culture expert on cu- building a team culture yeah well i'm not sure you, i'm not sure how how you can call somebody an expert these days like I'm, he doesn't have a degree in it he's just yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. You know, gone down this path and found that it's been successful for him and i know he still works with the uh with melbourne united um love, it. I love it there's there's an industry in it certainly within australia there's lots of different people and i have different people uh of had different facilitators at different times and like everything um some are you know, more impactful than others but the one that we used to, with the boomers guy's name is trent hutton um he's for me the best i've ever seen in this space <clears throat> well trent you will be contacted <laughs> <laughs> i can give you his number uh, perfect yeah. perfect so moving on to the third quarter we've been I, i love i love these topics as you see i'm i i really i i like to dig a little bit on on certain things that you mentioned um, moving on to the communication part, which is more in your case, it's cultural communication and uh, coaching New Zealand breakers and very successfully so, then also coaching the boomers and successfully so and in, in Brisbane and now in Japan. There's three different countries that, you, that you've been in. And to me, the thing, the commonality I see between those three countries is there's very peaceful countries in a sense where this is just, it's a, it's a very... Um, uh, uh, peaceful environments probably like just too too simple simply said but do you can you differentiate between the three cultures of how to coach or how you besides being yourself and being being you but was there certain nuances to each culture that you can remember and that you had to kind of adjust to while you were there uh for sure every um every country is different um And people are different and cultures are different. And it's important, I think, that you respect those. <clears throat> and um, again, uh, actually, one of, the, one of the learnings I took from uh, just observing the Europeans was when I was uh, with the boomers um, and going around and, uh, and, and uh, getting my butt kicked by Lithuania and um, going and watching Eurobaskets. Uh, the national teams often seem to have like just an older guy hanging around who'd just be at the end of the bench. Um, and then after the game, you sort of, you know, be in the hallways and you see him just talking to the coaching staff. And uh, after a while, I started to figure out that often there was a former coach that was, a you know, someone who's been through it before. And so I actually engaged a guy by the name of uh, Adrian Hurley, who'd been a successful uh, national team coach with Australia. Uh, 1996 and 2000 that led the uh, Australian team to fourth place finishes. Um, and so I took on this idea and I, I engaged with Adrian. We've kept a relationship ever since. And uh, when I took on the job in Japan, he and I spoke and I spoke about, oh, it's, you know, um, I'm going to uh, go and, uh, you know, get new experiences and, uh, you know, try to learn from them and um have a uh, yeah get 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 a different perspective on basketball and life and he's like he said to me i'm very happy to hear that that um i think it's important that you don't go and try to put your style onto them take their style and just try to add your little pieces to it 
um, which I thought was, uh, again, very, uh, very good advice. Um, so and that was certainly part of my growth um, and learning in New Zealand. I think uh, going down, finding this whole um, uh, cultural space uh, and team values and, and, and allowing the players to have control and input um, onto who we are as a team and, and, and shape us, uh, shape our, our identity, I guess. Um, that for me enabled me to get a better understanding of uh, of the New Zealanders and and how they think and what makes them special. And there's a there is a real special cultural connection um, within New Zealand. Um, there's an identity there that is hard to understand unless you um, unless you're from New Zealand. And uh, they certainly they play far above their individual talent level when they play as a group and for each other. Like there's a special chemistry that comes out uh, if you're allowed to. And, you know, there's a, um, and you start to learn about some of those little cultural things and little, you know, a little couple of cultural words that just mean something to New Zealanders and then the importance of the haka and how you can use that emotionally. And um, so that was a real, uh, that was a real learning experience for me when I guess I started to, um, give of myself into their culture rather than trying to force the, you know, the Australian way onto them. It's like, yeah. no, no, this is, you know, this works for them. This is good. Um, we've got a team made up mostly of New Zealanders. So let's, let's, and that actually differentiates us from the Australians. You know, we're playing in an Australian league full of Australians and now we can actually get a little, a little uh, point of be difference diff- here. Be different. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, that was good early learning for me obviously the Australian thing is I mean I've I've born and grown uh, grown up in Australia um, and I spent my time in the Australian basketball system so I guess I'm pretty ingrained in that culture anyway Um, but just with the boomers uh, the I guess what started to to um, really come to again to light again just through the ability to well through having the conversation and providing that environment, we're having conversations about what it means to each of us to be part of the boomers. Um, it just started to come out like what it meant for everybody in that room. And it's like, cause they're also passionate about Australian basketball and we hadn't achieved anything. We hadn't won a medal, you know, and until we got to that medal point, it was always going to be, uh, you know, we haven't quite, truly represented what we're doing in Australian basketball on the world stage. We haven't really shown that to the Australian people. And there was a real drive and desire to do that. And actually something I missed before um, when we're talking about the, you know, the, the team and um, uh, after one of our, the, I, I think after we qualified for the um, 2016 Olympics and we came back in the, um, <clears throat> the next day, again, instead of you know, everybody just disappearing after the the final game we said no we need one more day to come back and debrief and all that and the the culture guy Trent came in and we you know still did a few things together over an hour or so um round table stuff and we had a key moment there where again we spoke about you know winning the medal and actually I remember Paddy Mills stepping up and you know when we give him feedback to each other and he said no no fellas I want to stop talking about winning the medal I want to talk about winning the gold medal like that's what we're going there for we're going to win the gold medal and it was a real, no, for a team that had never won the medal, it was a sort of a, I think there was a moment there of everybody, oh, is that realistic? But then it was sort of, it flipped over to hell yeah, like let's let's go do that. And what that did was it drove 
like behaviors for the next 12 months. And, you know, there's um, certainly stories around the guys in the NBA during their um, all-star break, rather than taking holidays, like the Australian guys all got together during the all-star break and they spent their holiday together. Like they just, you know, again, because they, there was, we want to win a gold medal. We need to go do this, you know? And so it just really drove behaviors. Um, and so, yeah, just around the national team, um, I could feel that passion. I guess for me, it was easy to connect with that because that's kind of, you know, that's in my blood anyway. Um, and now in Japan, again, it's been another complete learning uh, experience and it's been a great experience. Um, again, just different culturally and uh, interesting there, the mix of how the imports work with the Japanese and the language barrier. And, um, and one of the reasons I wanted to take on the role in Japan is because I feel um, part of my success as a coach is the ability to communicate and get people to trust me and build those relationships that I talked to. I think if anything comes out of this podcast, it should be that I'm a relationships-based coach. You know, I want to I want to get um, the trust of the players and I want them to feel that I um, truly want what's best for them. And that's how, you know, I sort of connect with them and, and try to get the best out of them. Um, and I was like, can that work in a foreign language? You know, <laughs> because so much of communication is tone, expression, your facial expression, understanding when you know when um i'm being a little bit sarcastic or when i'm you know a smart remark to somebody or witty remark to somebody or you know something that is you know uplifting in a certain way and or you've got a relationship and there's a word or a phrase that means something to one player and you can say that on the fly and he's like yeah okay coach you know i, I got you you know sort of thing and and those and those bits um and can that work in a in a foreign culture and foreign language and um, it's been an interesting journey and I really, I really enjoyed my time. I think um, by it's taken some time and as with everything, it's, um, it's, it's giving and taking and molding and all those sorts of things. And uh, by the end of the year, I feel like um, we were slowly starting to get there and I look forward to this next season because we're returning most of the guys to, to see how that continues to grow. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can imagine a lot of a lot of things, a lot of nuances get lost in translation. And that's, that's, I think the biggest challenge when you go, to a foreign speaking country with a different culture, with a different expression. And that's not everything, every, lots of things get lost. And like you said, that's, that's, that, that's probably the toughest part when you implement that. But just before we move on to the fourth quarter, because we're already on a, on a, on a running, running here a little bit uh, towards overtime. <laughs> uh, one, one last question I wanted to ask uh, in, in terms of communication was with the staff, with the coaching staff, what your expectations are with the coaching staff how you like what topics you mostly talk to them about uh, besides cultural things because you also a lot of times the discussions i had was also how does this player feel what was this expression about what's the relationship between this player and that player which players like to play with each other those are i think uh more you can chalk that up to to culture but in terms of x's and o's uh, what are some things you talk to to your staff about and what are your what's what's your expectation from your staff whether it's practice or games. Yeah. So um, common discussions are sure the same with every staff is how the hell are we going to get out the pick and roll? <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do with that? That's international um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, that's that forms it. I think um, a lot also often discussions around who needs to play with who. Um potential like lineups that they might go with so you know do we need to be ready for any particular um like you know do we need to go with different lineups at different times based on who they're playing 
Um, certainly in the game situations, like who do we trust at the end of a game? Who needs to be in? Um, importantly, who's inbounding the ball? Um, I think something that's often overlooked, everyone's worrying about who's going to shoot, but who's going to inbound the basketball in a pressure situation. Um, so those sorts of those sorts of discussions, certainly you, I mean, you've got me off the, you know, you already covered off the, um, the team chemistry stuff and are there certain groups that play better together and who do we need to play with who? Um, you know, going into a game, what, you know, in this game, are there somebody from the opposition we want to pick on? Any sort of, you know, any two people we want to put in the pick and roll situations? Where are our advantages? Are we better running? Are we better slowing it down? Um, certainly from my perspective, and you <clears throat> no doubt would have felt this with the Lithuanian teams, how do, how do we disrupt defensively? Um, and so when you talk about expectations of my assistants, yep, go ahead. It looks like you, you had, want to say you something. Had, you had, luckily, you had Delhi to be the best, biggest disruptor in, in uh, on <laughs> earth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We did. And But again, in terms of with the group buying, uh, like, you know, buying in, I guess, if you want to say it to that to the system, and they understood, like, if we let Lithuania come down and run horns, that ain't going to happen for us. So, you know, yeah, Delhi leads it, but then we had people hitting at half court and running and jumping and getting it out of um, uh, Kalnides' hands and, okay, let's put them into a bit of a scramble team. Let's see if they, you know, you spoke before about, and often European teams like their systems and they feel very comfortable in their systems and they're very good. Their freedom within the system, as you said, no problems, but they like to get to, we start here and we do this. And so... Okay, we're not going to let you do that. Let's see how you play just freelance and go. And are you prepared to? And yes, for I think I've found certainly with European teams, yes, for periods of time. But ultimately, they want to come back to what they feel comfortable with. Every team does, right? You know, and particularly if the game keeps tight or gets tight or you miss a couple of shots, and then it's like, no, 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 we need to be able to run horns. Like we're good at horns. It's like, no, we're not going to let you run horns. Do something else. We don't care. Just don't run horns. Um, so I think that's that's uh, yeah that's a good uh, always um, kind of fight that you have with the European teams. Um, Sounds like you had a, quite a bit of a nightmares about horns. Yeah, I did, every <laughs> night. I uh, couldn't sleep for a week. Um, but uh, yeah, so certainly in terms of uh, expectations of my assistants, I mean the first one and the most critical one is I got to trust you. <laughs> that's it that's as a person starts, as a person as a person yeah as a person that starts and stops there um and i've you know, i've always said to them and just like we build uh with the with the team we also you know try to do things as a staff as to who do we want to be as a coaching staff and what do we want and what are our values and what do we expect from each other um so we spend time on that um And the, the thing that always comes out there is like, I want you guys to have your opinions. I want you to, you know, I don't, I don't want yes men. I want to have good discussions um, about stuff and bring your ideas. Um, but we have those in here as a coaching staff, you know, and we can, we debate as much as we want and no problems. But when we leave the room, we're united. Like this is where we're on a united front here, you know? Um, and the one thing that gets you fired with me is if I hear from somewhere around the trap that you've been bagging one of our players, you've been bagging me, you've been bagging our system, you don't know why we do something. If I hear that from someone else, like, you're gone. Come and tell me. If you don't like something we're doing, tell me. No problems. Like, good. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's have that discussion. <laughs> All good. Um, so trust is is the biggest one. You got to make, you know, because 
and particularly, you know, the higher you go, the more it's, you know, everyone's got a little political agenda and there's a board member standing next to somebody when things are going bad and all that sort of stuff. And you got to know that your assistance, no matter what, in every situation, we got your back. Um, so that's the first one. And then I want them, I, I want them to coach. I want them to go ahead. I'd give them lots of responsibilities of practice, coach teams, take drills, um, in games, I want them to come with their ideas and opinions, and of course, over time you build a you build a chemistry and a rhythm, and people start to find their niche and their spots, and what you know, and they know what you are as a coach and what you like and what you don't like. And um, again, hopefully, you build that environment where um, you can give and receive feedback without people taking offence. In in games, is a you know, it's a I, I hate calling it high pressure, but it's um. Like there's, it's it's quick decision making environment, and people come with ideas, and they can't get offended if you say no. <laughs> you know? But yep. I want you to come with next idea, Benis. You know, just because I shut that one down, I don't want you to sit down and sulk. Come with the net if you believe in something, come up and tell me. Um, yep. And that's that is also another interesting balance. I've had that discussion with assistant coaches sometimes. Is but if you come with something, come with it because you actually believe it's better for us, not just to not just to get in a discussion for the sake of this to be seen to be doing something you know like if you really believe our pick and roll defense should change come and tell me you think our pick and deep we should try something different different but don't just come and suggest something else just for the sake of it yeah yeah i i i've I've fallen prey to that one time uh, in the meeting early on when i the first some first year i worked with messina in 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 moscow and was where we had a meeting, we had a discussion, and I just like, yeah, we should we should guard the pick and roll this way instead of that way. And he said, why? Why do you think that? And yeah. I like I just had no answer for why. I just thought we should, we should change it up. But if you have to change it up, you have to also give a a, a good reason why you're changing it up. Yeah. And and just like that was the first like aha moment. Like I I ate shit for 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 a day, and I got I got uh, I got some uh, some some good advice there that day. But you learn yeah. from that, and then you learn to justify. You grow as a coach. You grow as a, as a staff because you're able to express yourself. There's a lot of freedom, like you said. Like it's good to have freedom on the staff and to give your coaches uh, a a platform to express themselves, whether it's to the players in front of the video session or in the staff, and let them. They have to have an opinion. You cannot have uh, just like you said followers. And there's a story that came up before we move on to the fourth quarter. There was a story that I remember from from an Outliers book. I believe it was Outliers. Where it's talking about uh, Korean air having lots of air cra- uh, air, airplane crash in the 70s or 60s, I believe. And there was just this weird co- correlation just with Korean air. And they they hired a outside uh, cultural um, expert or not expert, but a, somebody from the outside culture to see what's going on within within their cockpit. And they realized that there was just too rigid of a, of a system of co-pilots not being able to express their opinion because the hierarchy was so rigid and so hard that they were they saw the mistake made but they couldn't express themselves because they were afraid of being fired of being put aside and then the airplanes crash which is tragic so i think it's yeah. it's very important to 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 express that one quick question from self improvement because uh, i i see that we also have to go to the atos uh, and I, I hope are we still good on time i i know i'm yeah, yeah, i'm, yeah, I'm no over problem. going all good okay. yep all good um so uh, luckily, we started a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, the one from self improvement is there something that you've done 12 years ago, or specifically during the winning periods, uh, ext- uh, winning periods with New Zealand Breakers when, when you were coaching, 
that you, despite the winning, don't do today anymore, whether it's in practice or whether it's some, some, some habit that you had, something that you, that you used to do on a daily basis or within, within practices that you just uh, bagged it because of, because of new lessons that you've learned along the way? Hmm. That's a very interesting question um, and not one that I've really considered before. Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> and as I sit here now, I don't have um, a specific thing to answer to that other than um, like it's a continual growth journey. Like every, I mean, life is a continual growth journey. And I mean, coaching is certainly a continual growth journey. And do I coach differently now than I did 12 years ago? Yes, of course. You have to grow. Otherwise, you know, you're not, you're not going to survive. Um, in specific areas, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, um sort of say that uh again I, you know you grow and evolve and um the one of the things that <clears throat> i have done a lot in recent years that i've really taken interest in is um how the mind works uh, and i've read a few books on that and there's a great book called thinking fast and slow i'd recommend anybody to um, spend some time perusing that book um, and so just, again, how you can help people and influence people just by the, you know, by the way you choose to sort of frame things and say things. And I guess, um, perhaps, uh, continue to grow more down the positive space than, you know, if you're talking about differences from me from 12 years ago, it's like the positivity in my communication versus the negativity. And it's like, you know, something I always tell my wife is tell me what you do want, not what you don't want. Um, so that's <laughs> a little bit to the players, and I say that to the assistants. And I think any new assistant, any 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 assistant coach who comes with me for the first time will hear that somewhere in their first sort of month with me. It's like you know, whatever for me or the players, tell them what you want them to do. Stop telling them what you don't want them to do. You know, um, and so I think I'm certainly far more down that path now than I was uh, 12 years ago, where I used to always pick on the negatives. Now I start to now I think I focus more on either the positives or, you know, this is where we're, this is where, what we want. This is where we're trying to get to. Um, this is what we, you know, let's do it this way. <clears throat> love it. I love, I love that. I mean, I, I'm generally like enforced and like positivity because I think, I feel like just two minuses don't always make a plus, you know, like you can mathematically it's, it's true, but uh, on the court or in, in human behavior, it's not always true. I think that makes it difficult to really, uh, maximize the team's potential. So posit I'm always for positivity instead of negativity. Um, you ready yeah. for my ATO? Like like, I was going to say, like you know, so I said before about that, you know, the poor play that I ran um, in Japan uh, you know, at the end of a game. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I ran a poor play. And it's like, but what would I run? You know, so in your own mind, you're doing that. And it's the same for the players. Like, okay, so this is, we didn't like this, but this is the answer. This is the solution. This is the way out. This is the way to make it, you know, what we do want sort of situation. So, um, yeah, for me, that's the positivity, positivity side of it. And like I said before, it's uh, the continual question for me is as I keep getting older, you know, and the players keep staying the young age, how do I continue to be able to influence and have them trust me? And, you know, just now with the whole thing on, so on social media and communication, the way you communicate, um, I guess that's something certainly I've had to learn over the last few years. And as much as perhaps I don't like it personally, um, I've, I'm now, I have, well, 
implemented more communication via texting and WhatsApp and those sorts of things to a player individually. I always like, I've always been an individual communicator and I want to go and sit with a player and take him for a coffee and all that. And I still try to do that. But now, now I have given in and said, yeah, actually, to be able to communicate with them, I need to, I need to go to a, to a, to a platform they're familiar with or comfortable with. And so, you know, I've given into that for sure. And the other one is the embracing of analytics and whether, you know, that's a whole other podcast. I'm sure you've done plenty <laughs> on that. But uh, how much do you, you know, how much do you take on board and how much is feel and whether those two things meet. So certainly growth in that space. Totally, totally. All those topics I think about constantly. There's there's the yin and the yang and you have to balance it out and you have to find yourself within 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 the two somewhere. Um, yeah. You ready for my ATOs? Okay, it's, not really, but here we go. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna have to try to draw up the right play here, um, and you're gonna have to execute. <laughs> um, so you already mentioned that a little bit, but this is just a quick, um, quick maybe. Why? Why did you not have social media up until now? Like I saw you have LinkedIn, uh, but I didn't see you on Instagram or Twitter. Is is there a particular reason why you why you try to not to be on there? Uh, yeah, I found um, in my career that I do get um, impacted by negative comments and things like that and white noise. Um, and once I read something, I find it hard to unread it. Um, and so I find it just better not to put myself in that situation where I could get hit with any sort of white noise. So I, I stay away from it. Um, certainly my club, there are people that monitor or keep a track of, you know, what's going on with player accounts and all that. And if there's something that, you know, they think I need to be across, they'll, they'll let me know, but I stay right away from it. Is, and I'm would, way happier. <laughs> <laughs> As you get older, that's one of the things, your own happiness starts to weigh the things a little bit more too, you know? <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about accountability and ownership. Is there such thing as taking too much ownership for your own actions? Wow, interesting question. Um, no, like I, the the answer is no. Like I don't think you can take too much ownership, but um, you can let it beat you up too much. Like you can let it change um, what happens next. You know, the ability to move on to the next part or the next play, and you can continue to let uh, a poor choice or bad or bad decision then impact what happens next, as opposed to being able to move on to the um, to now making a, a better decision or a better or a better outcome uh, for what's about to happen. <clears throat> um, I've got two quick questions from uh, listeners. One was uh, about the breakers um, season, seasons at, at the end of your breakers career. Was there a point where you you felt like you had to leave, and without knowing the backstory of of how it ended, but did you feel like you had to leave in order to grow? Or was there just a, a, come, did a point come where it just went to a different direction from uh, when you had to leave New Zealand? So um, the national team job came up. Um, and uh, at that point, the Australian national team wanted a full-time, the federation wanted a full-time national coach. They hadn't had one since 2000. That was the last time they'd had you know, any sort of success again where they'd finished fourth <clears throat> at an Olympic Games. And so they were going back down that path and, so in order to coach a national team, I needed to be, I needed to commit to being a full-time national coach. And 
it was a really difficult decision to leave New Zealand. Like that was, you know, such a critical part of my career and such wonderful people. And the owner there is the, one of the most beautiful people you would ever meet um, and invested a lot of time in me. And so that was a, that was a heartbreaking uh, thing to do, but it was a chance to catch my national team. And ultimately that, uh, that was the decision I took. <clears throat> uh, fourth, fourth place behind Lithuania, I might add. <laughs> yes, that's right. At the Sydney Olympics. Indeed. Heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations to the yeah. uh, uh, we, You got, got your fair share of victories too. Um, uh, another one from, from a listener. Uh, the youth system in Australia, which personally I really adore, uh, where everything is centered from throughout the AIS and it's, it's filtered through. Do you feel like it's, it's uh, if you feel like anything could be improved, what would it be in, in, within that system? So I mean, it's a as you say, I think it's a very good system, um, uh, and uh, I think we're starting to see sort of the the results of it now. We've got lots of players being drafted. Dyson Daniels drafted with number eight the other day. Like you know, we're getting a constant flow of Australians into the NBA now more than we ever had, um, and that's a result of the development system for sure. <clears throat> the one thing um, that I and so part of being the full time national coach was. Um, overseeing the development system on the men's side of it uh, and providing leadership and, you know, uh, some direction on that side of it. So for me there, the um, thing that could improve is just the, um, the, the relationship and I guess ultimate buy-in from the States into what doing what is best for the national program. And it's, it's only, it's, you know, it's human nature, right? Is, So at the state level and then down at the club level, it's I want to win now. This is my kid. You know, I you know I don't want to let him go up to the next level of you know, for him to be taken away because now my team's not going to win. Um, I want to play the you know the five foot two point guard because he's better than the six foot two point guard who can't quite dribble right now. But for the good of the you know, for the good of the national program, you should play the six foot two guy because he's the one who's going to be there. You know, come in another five years time, like just that coordination and buying to the to the overall. Um, I guess national program is the one thing, just making that a bit more the synergy of that better. But I mean, the national program has a a big part to play in that because at the moment the the rewards aren't there from the national program for those who do the work at the junior levels. Um, you know, you don't get rewarded for having players come up and play in the national program and those sorts of things. So the rewards are all based on how you're going now, you know, and winning yeah. now. <clears throat> But that's that's a similarity in Lithuanian Lithuanian um, system as well. Uh, there's the, the 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 need and the the urge to win by the coaches, uh, but in, in in hindsight, there's also a reward for the coaches if their player comes up the system and plays for the national team at some point. It's a small reward, but it's still a reward, and there's some sort of incentive to bring to bring the player up. But you still the coach also wants to win. So that's also like too much tactics, too much scouting at a young age. And it kind of deters the player from developing openly to basketball and not to a rigid system that the, that the coach wants to see. Last mm -hmm. question, quick hitter, quick hitter at the end. You mentioned the book already that I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned fast, thinking fast and slow. Uh, but last, and this is my Tim Ferriss question that I ask almost every every time when I when I talk to uh, a guest, what's your favorite favorite failure throughout your career that you learned the most from and you can you like it stinks that it instincts and it also brings a smile to your face at the same time My favorite failure 
Hmm. There's probably so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The one that has joy joy attached to it. Yeah. So um, I've I've referred to um, that first year where, you know, well, first year being the the head coach, I was actually at New Zealand, we're a bad team, and I was trying to be somebody I'm not. Um, And... Through that period, like there's a player there, Mika Vakona, who's had a, a wonderful um, international career for New Zealand. Uh, and at that stage, he was just a, a young player for me. I brought him in. And over the next couple of years, um, he, uh, he, he started playing for us. And Mika, as you know, plays with an amazing energy and um, toughness. toughness is what he brings. Um, but and particularly when he was young, like he would make like – some just crazy mistakes, right? Like he would, you know, dribble down the floor and throw the ball in the fifth row. And I focused on that with Mika all the time. Like I was always yelling at him about the mistakes that he was making and getting on him about, you know, settling down. And I didn't sort of perhaps perceive all the good things that he did, you know, and like with every player, they give and they take, you know, as long as you give more than you take, it's a pretty good equation. But I didn't see the giving part with Mika. Um, and so I was constantly on him and I didn't build a relationship. At that stage, we weren't doing this cultural stuff. And then his contract came up and I you know, was desperate to resign him. And he chose to go to a different team. And when I asked him, like, you know, it was like, oh, I'm disappointed. Mika, what happened? He's like, I don't feel like you trust me. Um, and that for me was a, like, that was a real you know, smack in the mouth moment of here's a guy, you know, I've brought him in as a young guy. He's a good player. I'm trying to keep him and he, he leaves because I he doesn't feel that I trust him. Like, wow, like this is, this was hurtful. Um, and that started me down some of this other path. And, you know, as the story goes, you know, Mika comes back to New Zealand. We go win three championships together. And now, you know, we have a, we have a wonderful relationship. And uh, yeah, when Mika started to, when Mika came back, that's the other part of the story. So, you know, Mika got to a point where he was playing. If he made a mistake, he'd always look over at me and I'd be like, you know, God, Mika. And then after he came back and I'd grown a little bit as a coach and, I, you know, he had hurt me so much by that one comment that um, that stuck with me. When he came back, you know, he'd be doing the stuff. He'd dive on the floor, loose ball, rebound and all that. And I'd be up and smiling. And then... He'd come down, he'd throw the ball. He'd still throw the ball in the fifth row sometimes. And that happened and he'd look, I'd see him start to look at me and I'd pretend like I'd look down at the bench like I was talking to an assistant coach. I'd be looking up in the stands and I'd just have a big smile on my face or something, you know. Um, and so, from you know, I started to realise that you did so many good things that you had to, um, to accept some of the mistakes with it. But the bigger thing was the trust. You know, he, he knew that I trusted him and I believed in him. So... That's probably, yeah, as I reflect on it now, a significant moment in my career. Yeah. Uh, was that specific to the to him or was it specific to New Zealand culture, you think? Uh, the tr- the I trust. Think, uh, I, yeah, I think specific to him because, I mean, he's just a player, not just from New Zealand culture. I mean, again, every player has their own emotions and, um, and confidence and the way they, you know, they interact with you and, again, expressions on the face and, all that sort of stuff. And as I reflected on it after he said that uh, <clears throat> he felt I didn't trust him, I mean, when I reflected on myself, it's like I, under- I could understand why. 
because <clears throat> so much again his facial expression and this and when he's doing something and grabbing your hair and like what are you doing like you know all that sort of stuff i could understand that then he's he would start to play anxiously yeah and i think any player does tight, you know tight, if you, tighten up yeah if players are uh, uh, playing scared to make a mistake that's a tough place to play it's a tough place for anybody to play i think and, and to, to succeed Well, thank you for trusting me for this podcast. Uh, it's it, of course, it's, it's been a while. Yes, yes. We, I've taken, I've taken you through the ringer here for for almost hour and a half, and I, I apologize for taking it too far, too long. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed this podcast. I, I can honestly say this was my favorite and most um, f- fluent. Like your your offense and had the most flow to it. <laughs> and uh, I think I think we did a lot of good counters. Also, when 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 I did a side turn, and I appreciate your patience with it. Of course, Prince. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it, and hopefully, your listeners get something out of it. <laughs> ah, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening to it, and uh, see you soon. Bye. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat>